Let's turn our friends to the uh, second portion we read in the book of Genesis. In verse 4 we read, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, referring to the servant, he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. God called this man, Abraham, out of darkness and out of great ignorance. He was a citizen of a place called Ur. This uh, was located north of the Persian Gulf, if you can imagine that in your mind's eye. Now, in what form this call from God came, we cannot be sure. But all we know is that, and we learn this from Hebrews chapter 11, he obeyed and went out, not knowing where he was going. Now, my friends, when we obey God, unquestioningly he will turn our mountains into molehills left to our own devices we do the very opposite we take your molehills and we turn them constantly into mountains and Abraham wasn't the only man who discovered this Moses discovered that when he was called to that impossible job of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years, at the age of 80, he recognized how God could indeed turn his mountains into molehills. Well, here, Abraham, when he left this place, Ar, to journey to what turned out to be Canaan, he stopped halfway in a place called Haran, and there his father died, and he moved on. So we read in chapter 12 of this book, book of Genesis, Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. Now at this stage, as you can see, he's called Abram, but I, I would possibly be referring to him as Abraham throughout. Now, in those days... There was no Bible for Abraham to read or to consult. There was no organized religion as such. Yet, the Lord Jesus told others about this amazing man. Listen to what he said. This is in John chapter 8. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And evidently, the word glad in that context means he jumped for joy. How incredible, my friends, was that? Now, whatever Jesus meant by that, I suppose we could understand that in different ways. Paul made an even direct connection between Abraham and you, if you are a Christian here this morning. He wrote in that first reading we had in Romans chapter 4, Abraham, he said, who is the father of us all. What an incredible man. What an incredible testimony. 
Now, although Abraham is the epitome of great faith, he also experienced the greatest testing of that faith in the experience of the Lord's people. Something, if we are spared, we will look at this evening. And that's what makes him so crucial as a model for all Christian people. You see, he wasn't a man without faults and failings, but he was a man who sought to serve God constantly and faithfully. Now here in old age, a long-time believer in Jehovah God, he lacked only one thing, a family. He had no children. And that's the burden that God is now going to address for him. So let's look, first of all, at God doing this in verse 3. Here's the complaint from Abraham. To me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Referring to the servant Eliezer. Now, this is not something you see in every page of scripture. Great men or women bringing their complaint to God about God. You don't see that every day. Now, whichever way we read these words in verse 3, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion, this is a complaint that Abraham is making. And furthermore, Abraham had good reason to complain. When we realize what God promised him on leaving our of the Chaldees in the first place. Genesis 12, verse 7. This is God speaking to Abraham. Unto thy seed, unto thy children, will I give this land, referring to Canaan. And then God added, in that same chapter, Genesis 12, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Children and land. But both of promises implied and did it depended on Abraham having children. Yet the closest thing to a family he had was this servant called Eliezer. Now, <clears throat> at this stage in history, God had already adjusted the lifespan of humanity. From the record set by Methuselah, and I'm sure the children and the young people know what that record was, 969 years, the average maximum was now somewhere between one and 200 years. Abraham himself lived for 175 years. And also, and perhaps more significantly, the age of childbearing was even more reduced at this stage. Paul wrote of Abraham and Sarah, as we read in Romans 4, that Abraham considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now that's not to say, of course, that Abraham was too old to father children because he had other children after this. But nevertheless, the Bible says of Sarah in Genesis chapter 18, she was well stricken in age and it ceased to be with her after the manner of women. 
In any case, here they are, the years passing by fast and no sign of God fulfilling his promise of children. So after the escapades recorded in chapters 13 and 14, where uh, Abraham had to go and rescue his nephew Lot, the burden for this heir returned big time to Abraham. So God did what only God can do. He appeared to Abraham in what we today would call virtual reality. It's known in the Bible as visions. Verse 1, he came to Abraham in a vision, and he spoke to him in this vision, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thine exceeding great reward. Now, Abraham took full advantage of this, uh, this unusual meeting, and he replies in verse 3, To me thou hast given no seed. I haven't got a child except one born in my house or at least one born in my house is my heir, this Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Abraham was astute enough to realize that this Eliezer could not be his legitimate son. This Eliezer could never be the man that was going to fit into God's plan. How then could Abraham meet his obligations to God? And that's everything, my friends, that we meet our obligations to God. And that should be our concern right now, 2022, for numerous reasons. Let me point out a couple. We should be burdened today for the future of our religious inheritance. And if you're not burdened about this, there's something wrong with your thinking. How will the political turmoil and the spiritual poverty of our day and generation, how are these things going to impact upon your children and upon your children's children? upon those who will be alive in 10 years' time if God is going to spare the world. One of the main candidates to be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is a religious alien to Christianity. Will your children and your children's children have to conclude the steward of my house is the Eliezer of Damascus? In other words, will our next prime minister be ignorant of the Christian worldview, of Christian values, of Christian standards? Former United Kingdom prime ministers weren't obviously born-again Christians, but largely they were sympathetic to what Christianity stands for. Now, Abraham realized the importance of his seed, his children, being under the influence of Jehovah's religion. And he wanted the next generation to carry that banner, the banner of Jehovah's religion, into the future. We owe that much to our children 
unto our children's children. That we do everything in our power to ensure that this is the banner that will be flying over the United Kingdom in 10 years' time. But it's not going to happen, my friends, without our prayers and without divine intervention and blessing. And even more so, the Christian church desperately needs reformation and revival. Here we are, like Abraham and Sarah, watching the years pass, looking to heaven for help and deliverance. But, like Sarah, we remain spiritually childless. We have become barren, my friends. Seldom, seldom, seldom seeing boys and girls and men and women born again of the spirit of life in our midst. We've become barren, just like Sarah. And more dangerous still, like Abraham and Sarah, the temptation to compromise, to take shortcuts, is very real. They fell into it, and so have far too many churches throughout our land. Let me move on to look at God's answer to Abraham, verse 4. This shall not be thine heir, referring to Eliezer, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now God is saying to this impatient man, you must be more patient still. And that's a tough ask, my friends, especially when you're 100 years old. Now, in some circumstances, being patient, and some of you know this, being patient can be utterly torturous, especially when your patience are stretched to the limit. And Abraham and Sarah were acutely aware of each passing year and the onset of old age. Yet, not only had God promised them a child, he went much further than that. He led Abraham outside at night, and he challenged him. Look at verse 5. Look toward heaven, he said to him, and tell the stars if they'll be able to number them. And he said, so shall thy seed be. If the promise of one child seemed impossible right here for Abraham and Sarah, how much more impossible was this promise sound that they were going to have children like the stars in the sky in number? Everything about this subject makes the matter seem ever more impossible. But then, my friends, is the God of Abraham and the God we worship here this morning, is he not the God of the impossible? Shortly after this, an angel spoke to Sarah and to Abraham and said, chapter 18, verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
We believe in the God of the impossible, my friends. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, it's matters of this nature that ought to make us stand in awe of our glorious, amazing God. And throughout history, men and women trembled in fear when they realized just how awesome and majestic and glorious our God really is. You remember the effect this had on Moses when he stood on Mount Sinai? We learned this from Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. He said, I exceedingly feared and quaked. In other words, I was shaking in my shoes. When I say I saw something similar, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Well, this man, to his credit, gave a very different response. And Paul used this to illustrate the faith that justifies in God's presence. Now, here's a question for you. If I were to give you a pencil and a paper this morning and ask you this question, <clears throat> could you write down the instance of Abraham's faith that you consider to be the most outstanding example? Would I be right in thinking that 99.9% .9 of you here would write down Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Abraham sacrificing his son on Mount Moriah. That's where most people will go to the most outstanding example of this man's great faith, but that's not where Paul went. No, he came to this incident. This is the example he chose. God pointing to the stars in heaven and telling this man, the childless Abraham, that he would become the father of many nations. Paul tells us how great this man's faith really was. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from the reading, the first reading we had in Romans, and I'm going to give them to you, urging you to memorize them if you haven't already done so and to use them, to apply them to your own life as a Christian and to the lives of others. Paul wrote that Abraham, Romans 4, against hope, believed in hope. How is that for a statement? Against hope, believed in hope. In other words, when everything seemed biologically impossible for them to have a child, when all hope of a child was gone, Abraham simply believed what God said. Against hope, he believed in hope. He didn't know how, he didn't know when, he didn't know where that all of this would take place, but he believed that it would. He looked to himself, he looked to Sarah's wife, and their situation seemed hopeless. 
But then he looked to heaven and he found his hope in God, the hope of the hopeless. Oh, remember that, my friends. Against hope, always believe in hope. Whatever your situation is, whatever your burden is here this morning. When Abraham believed the promise, what was impossible became possible. And here's the second phrase I want you to remember and memorize and use. Again from Romans 4. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He staggered not. <clears throat> I think Paul chose his words very, very carefully and deliberately. He staggered not. Now see if you can't relate to this. Because this is talking about something that happens in your mind and in your heart constantly. It's being pulled to this way and to that way in your mind. A, a proposal is put to you. A truth is set before you. You want to believe it. And sometimes you believe it. But then you find yourself doubting it. You go this way. You go that way. You're not very, you're staggering. I remember when I was preparing this, I remember I, having preached a sermon in, 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 in uh, <clears throat> my first congregation in Crow in Glasgow. And a uh, uh, man who was present said to me outside, he said, <clears throat> well, he says, I was very impressed by your arguments, he said. But, you know, some, sometimes, he said, when I feel that, when I feel impressed by an argument in the pulpit, Tomorrow, I might hear a different point of view from another minister, and I find myself going with him. So I don't know which way to go. I'm staggering this way, that way. Does that not capture how you feel sometimes? Even perhaps about your relationship with God? Sometimes you believe, sometimes you're not so sure. You remember the man that came to Jesus, staggering in his heart, staggering in his mind. Oh, he said, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Abraham didn't allow that. He staggered not through unbelief. And when he looked at those stars, he didn't see a mountain. Perhaps he never even saw a molehill. He believed God. We're told he believed God. Paul says he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, it's not an encouragement, my friends, for all of us who trust in Christ, who believe in God. I think it's a huge encouragement. Let me give you two brief examples of this. <clears throat> First of all, that's the situation we have, the situation of hopeless decline here in Scotland and even in our denomination. It cannot be described in any other way, my friends, but a hopeless decline. And there is no hope for us in man. 
not in ourselves, not in ministers, not in politicians. But there's hope in him, my friends. We'll always find our hope in him. As the angel said, is there anything too hard for him? And the second application, sorry for being so brief about this. It's the situation of this very congregation and our need for a full-time pastor and preacher. The free church continuing has never been so short of ministers and students, never in its brief history. Now, even if we agree on someone in the meeting that's going to take place in a couple of weeks' time, what if we get turned down? Where do we go then? Are we left hopeless? Of course we're not. Here's where we'll go. To the God who will provide us with hope. To the God of the impossible. And the route to God is on our knees. Pleading with him. Begging him to show us in the right way. Direct us in the right way. And to show us who will be the man who will adorn this pulpit as a pastor and a preacher. The God of the impossible, my friends. Let's not stagger on this. Let's be strong in faith, giving glory to our God. Let me move on, thirdly, to God adding to the promise of our child. He adds to it. May have sounded impossible in the first place, but he now adds to it. In verse 4, we have the promise of the child. He that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Uh, Abraham believed that he would father a child. He believed that Sarah would bring a child into this world. Let me quote again from Romans 4. He considered not his own body, nor being dead about 100 years old, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. He believed God against all the odds. And he was rewarded for that. He received the greatest blessing. Greatest blessing that any man or woman, any boy or girl can receive from God. Look at verse 6 of this chapter. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. My friends, gold and silver cannot buy you righteousness in the presence of God. This is the greatest blessing you could ever pray for. That God would count you righteous in his sight. Because that and that alone will secure you eternally. Then comes the addition in verse 7. I am the Lord that brought thee out of all of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. So the child soon to be born wasn't merely to be a son for Abraham and Sarah. Isaac was also to be far more than that. He was to be the beginning of many nations of God's people on earth. So God provided Abraham with a son, and he provided him with a land for subsequent generations to live in. All of which pointed, of course, to gospel realities in the New Testament age. That's what all this is about. 
Meanwhile, for Abraham, the entire package, if I can put it that way, of children and land, was confirmed and sealed in an extraordinary way. So he asked God in verse 8, Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit this? Now, God's answer, to say the least, was unexpected. He commanded Abraham to choose a selection of animals and birds. Verse 9, a heifer, kind of a cow, goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And these were all killed, split in the middle, except for the birds. Now, Abraham, so precious did Abraham consider this sacrifice to be, we see him uh, scaring away the scavenging birds that came down in verse 11. When the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now, there's a lot of teaching in that itself, but I haven't got time to go into it. I must move on to verse 12. A deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And during this sleep, God spoke to him again. And he predicted for him the Egyptian slavery of the children that would come from Isaac, the children that were yet unborn in verses 13 and 16. Then Abraham saw in verse 17 a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Now I would suggest to you, my friends, that these two items, the smoking furnace and the burning lamp, represented the fire of God's justice and the light of God's love. The fire of God's justice and the light of God's love. And every succeeding generation of Abraham's children lived under the banner of those two attributes, the fire of God's justice and the banner, the light of God's love. But so do you. As you sit here this Sabbath morning, whether you realize it or not, you are under one or other of these, the fire of God's justice or the light of God's love. Which do you think applies to you? Ask yourself that profound question, my friends. What's hanging over your head here this morning? Is it the fire of divine justice or the light of God's love? The next clear demonstration of these two attributes coming together wouldn't be till the cross of Calvary. And that's where all this is going, as I said earlier. This is all preliminary to the provision God has made for us in the gospel. And that provision is based upon God the Father promising his son, Jesus Christ, an inheritance of children. We will be singing about this in our final praise in Psalm 2. Ask of me, this is the Father speaking to the Son, in the counsels of eternity, ask of me 
and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance. Who were the heathen? You and me. And no less has he promised land for his children to abide in eternally. Isaiah 33, verse 17. This is talking about you, Christian. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is afar off. The paradise that God has prepared for his children. And all that is confirmed to us by the sacrifice of Calvary. And there, as our Lord hung, suspended between earth and heaven, where his body and soul were separated like Abraham's sacrifices here. There the smoking furnace of divine fury poured down upon his holy head. But out of that darkness, my friends, emerged the burning lamp of divine love that will never be extinguished for the children of God who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So each time you hear and each time you read of the gospel story at Calvary, what is your response? How do you react when you read about Christ and him crucified? How do you respond to it? Do you stagger through unbelief? Or are you here this morning, my friends? Are you here this morning against hope, believing in hope that the crucified Christ is your Lord, God, and Savior? Are you staggering or are you clinging against hope, believing in hope that you are saved for time and for eternity? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and most blessed God, we thank thee once again for thy precious word, for the treasury of thy word, and for often we are shown things new from this treasury, things that convict us, things that will excite us, things that edify us, things that challenge us. But most of all, we are so often shown things that will glorify our God, things that will show us the beauty and the comeliness of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. O oh, gracious Lord, preserve us, deliver us from ourselves, 
Deliver us from unbelief. Deliver us from the attacks of Satan. And deliver us into that glorious liberty of the children of God. For thy name's sake. Amen.